and welcome to the Mountain Munch podcast, the show that covers any outdoor topic from fell running to nature writing and from current issues to epic adventures. We aim to cover it all whilst always asking our guest that all-important question. What is your favourite adventure snack? On today's episode, I am talking to Keith Partridge, an Emmy award-winning adventure cameraman who came to Fort Williams Highland Cinema for a special showing of Touching the Void. We had a wonderful chat sat on a bench above Fort William and we chatted all things from Biker Grove to Antarctica and we got a little bit sidetracked by Alien vs Predator but we also had a really interesting chat about his involvement in academia and how to recognise that golden opportunity. We also discussed any top tips for budding adventure filmmakers. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I love chatting to Keith and keep an ear out for a rogue cuckoo at the end. Welcome to the Mountain Munch podcast. Today I'm very excited and a little nervous to be chatting to Keith Partridge, the adventure cameraman who has won numerous international film awards, was the man behind Touching the Void and has travelled across the globe working with other greats including Steve Backshaw, Sir Chris Bonington and Dave McLeod. He reckons there's nothing more powerful than a first-hand experience and he strives to use his camera to tell a story, whether that's in the Arctic or the Andes. So very much welcome Keith. Nice to be here nice. on what is actually a lovely day, isn't it's, it? Yeah, it's really and nice. No midges. I know. There's a, there's a breeze. There's no midges. It's fab. Um, so the first question I'd like to ask you, something that we ask all of our uh, guests, and it's a very important one because people who like to spend time outside require food and sustenance. So when you're travelling around doing all your adventures and filming all across the globe, what is your go-to adventure snack? What? To be brutally honest, my go-to adventure snack is a Tunnock's caramel wafer. Oh, classic. An absolute <laughs> it's gotta be. classic. I mean, there's virtually no calories in them. That's why I keep telling myself <laughs> after the 10. But I have been known to snaffle, you know, packs of them yeah. in my kit bags to fly off to the Himalaya or the Arctic. Yeah. And, they, and they, you bring them out when people are feeling really low yeah. and they think you're like the best thing since... Oh, yeah, they're fab. They're, they're <laughs> one of my brother's favourites as well. He'll uh, he'll be really impressed with that one. Yeah, yeah. Do and you... they're local. They are local. Well, Scottish, Scottish. local. Yeah. Uddingston, I think, aren't they? Something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know where they're from, but yes, they are cracking. Do they do they stand up to all the different climates that you work in? Well, they do go a bit soggy in the warmth, don't they? <laughs> yes. But, you know, I, I think it gives you an opportunity to lick the silver wrapper. Okay. You know, oh, yeah. too much information. I'm yeah. sorry, but that's just the way it is, isn't it? You don't want to waste them. No, no. I mean, get every last little bit. That's what I always say. <laughs> I was wondering, I want to go right back to when you were younger. Did you come from a family of outdoor enthusiasts? My background growing up in North Norfolk, which is pretty flat, as yeah. you can imagine. Yeah. I mean, you know, my mum and dad were really not adventurous. Mm -hmm. We would climb Ben Nevis when I was 11 with my dad, yep. but um, we just went up the tourist path. Yep. We didn't really know what we were doing, you know. No. So I wouldn't say they were adventurous or particularly outdoorsy at all. But uh, I used to do a lot of cycling around Norfolk and at the age of 13 I'd think nothing of cycling 50 miles on a Saturday just for a laugh you know wow okay um but it's flat there's no hills isn't yep. it? so it's actually pretty easy let's face it <laughs> but also you know so my background really isn't in the outdoors and it wasn't right. really until the age of 18 and a very good friend of mine had his dad had a book by 
the very famous Scottish photographer and author of Poucher. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at it going, this landscape can't possibly exist. And it was of the northwest, Assand. Oh, so really? we went to wow. try and find where these photographs were taken. Just prove that they're real. Yeah, and yeah. it was a it was a real eye opener. And we effectively did the kind of North Coast five hundred, yeah. but way back before that was before, a thing. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and and we and we just started going into the mountains really from, from that moment on. Yeah. And, you know, as any mountaineering apprenticeship mm-hmm. goes on, you know, you start with the really easy stuff and it starts to get a bit more tricky. And then you think, well, that was a bit of a laugh, you know, let's yeah. live on the edge a bit further yeah. and see how much we can push it again. And before you know it, you're out in the winter and, you know, brandishing yeah. an ice axe and still not really knowing what you're doing. <laughs> and I still don't, you know, so. Um, I think everyone has days like that, yeah. though. Not really yeah. sure what I'm so doing, but. Yeah. So that, that was it, really. Yeah. But I think I, w- I was one of these people who never minded pushing myself physically. Yeah. You know, I was, I was one of these people who didn't mind being out of breath and really pushing it and f- having yeah. that buzz where you feel that you can breathe and breathe and breathe in and yeah. feel your chest just expanding almost kind of forever. Yeah. So for me, you know, being in the mountains and charging up 3,000 feet of yeah. heather slope was just the best thing since, well, the tonic tea, tea cake or wafer. <laughs> yeah. Or, um, <laughs> Just send me a box <laughs> there's a subtle hint there isn't it <laughs> oh i still love that pushing myself and just getting getting breathless and just feeling alive i guess yeah is, is, is what yeah. you feel yeah and and of course it becomes consuming yeah as a as an activity as a passion yeah and it becomes the only thing you want to do is mm-hmm. to actually be out in the mountains either climbing or even just walking or scrambling but just being with pals who are like-minded that's all you want to do yeah and then there was a point professionally I was working with the BBC at the time and I was thinking oh you know I just I just really wasn't sure who I was I think Mm -hmm. and so it was kind of a maybe a bit of a rash decision but one day I just decided to hand in my notice and just resign oh wow okay Um, so before before you started doing adventure cameraman type work what were you doing before then? Well, I, I was trained by the BBC. I joined them at the ripe yeah. old age of 18, straight from school as a trainee. And I worked with them for six years as staff. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I worked on everything from local news and current affairs yeah. through to feature programs, architecture, wildlife, right the way through to Biker Grove. And I was on the camera oh. team on set, went out on deck, did their first oh day gosh. ever. I'm that old. Oh my, my God, gosh. I'm so ancient. Hey, I'm sorry. That, no, it's fan- <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Every time someone said biker, I just want to do the, the accent. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But I'm not going to. No. <laughs> so those days at the BBC were, were really good fun. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. You know, it was terrific. And what an amazing background and experience to have. You mm-hmm. know, driving a 42-channel sound desk live on children in need. Yeah. Or driving one of those enormous studio cameras live in a studio because I just did everything I did sound did cameras did lighting did editing you know yeah. the whole lot is yeah. what we were trained to do so what an amazing background to have then mm-hmm. when you go in eventually to the adventure filmmaking world because you can yeah. basically turn your hand to anything yeah and that's really what you need out there you know you need to be able to be ahead of all the problems mm-hmm. before they become a problem before they even arise because you've already sidestepped it or yeah. thought of a way over it yeah there's not time and you and out in the field you don't have the luxury of an engineering department to come to your rescue no 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 that's fair well you've been doing adventure filming for over 20 years now 
Um, what aspects of the job have kept you involved? Like, what do you love about the work you do? I think it's like being in the mountains or just being on an expedition yeah. with people who are like-minded. Yeah. And just that sense of accomplishment with a team. Mm -hmm. That's really what drives you forwards all the time. Yeah. The objectives change, of course they do, and the skill set changes from caving yeah. to climbing to winter mountaineering or mm -hmm. whatever it is, or traveling across the Arctic ice. Yeah. So those core skills change, but the thing that never changes mm -hmm. is the amazing people that you get to spend time with. Yeah. And that's not only with your own core team of adventure enthusiasts, yeah. but it's also with those locals who really are the masters of their own environments, yeah. whether yeah. it's working with the Greenland hunters yeah. you know, in the Arctic in winter, and those guys know the sh everything about the sea ice. Yes. They're miles ahead of like, you know, <laughs> we go, what sudden crack and thud did you hear that now means that we're on for Armageddon and total <laughs> ice break up within the next 15 minutes? And by yeah. the way, yeah, we ought to move, didn't we? Let's not chat about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. You know, you learn so much and have so much respect for these guys. Yeah, because they, they are the experts at the end of the day. Because yeah. they, they, they work with the land. They, you know, they're so immersed in it. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with the Sherpa in the Himalaya. It's yeah. the same with, you know, amazing people in Mongolia, you know, spending time out there hunting yeah. the golden eagles. Yeah, I was going to say, I, saw, I read about that. That's that and it's just extraordinary yeah. stuff. But it also gives you a window into a way of life which you would never normally have access to. Yeah. As I say, I mean, that's a real joy. That keeps you going back to. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I can, I can totally see why you would keep going with it because it's just, it's just awesome. As a relatively recent graduate, I was delighted to discover that you have been involved in the world of academia. Um, could you tell me a bit more about that side of your work and, and why, you, why you get involved with teaching? I think it's important that young people realise that there are very many paths yeah. and are you lucky or do you make luck? We could discuss that for hours. Yeah. But the thing is that I was okay academically at school. Mm -hmm. I was not really the brightest kid in the group yeah. and I never did particularly brilliant at exams. There are reasons for that. <laughs> <laughs> we could go into that yeah um but ultimately mm -hmm. what i did and where i was passionate about ended up getting me into tv and broadcasting yeah nothing else no and i don't have any qualifications formal do you not nothing wow and that comes as a quite a surprise to some people yeah and yet the reason I got my initial job with the BBC is because at the age of 14, myself mm -hmm. and a friend, we started a business. And we were we designed and developed an entire mobile disco. Sounds a bit cheesy, corny, but we built all the equipment. So we yeah. learned so much about electronics and design. Yeah. We then ran it successfully as a business from the age of 14. It was still running when I sold my half of the business to my business partner at the age of 21. Oh my gosh, wow. And, um, that got me the job at the BBC. They didn't care about no. the exams. No. Yeah. They what they cared about was passion. Yeah, and I guess the the fact that you've put yourself out there and the experience that you've gained from that and what the lessons you've learned and a lot of that stuff you can't learn in a classroom. You can't, and of course, if you think about it, dare I say it, being a DJ 
running the discotheque business yeah. was also about how you approach people. Yeah. It's about being professional, being on time, turning up. Yeah. All those really important things yeah. that get you through your working life, or get you through all of life. Yeah. And so mix that with a bit of technical passion and a love for music, sound and lighting. Excellent. And a love of photography. You know, it was like a match made in heaven to join the BBC at, at oh, the great. age of 18. Yeah. And um, so back to the original question, there isn't a right way. No. If you're not that academically minded, mm -hmm. there will be doors and opportunities that will open to you. And in my mind, the, the critical thing is, and what I love about what I was doing with the University of Cumbria and other education institutions about I work a lot in Canada at the Banff Centre yeah, with the yeah. Banff Mountain Film Festival. Yeah. Um, it's about making people realise when the golden opportunity is about to present itself in front of them yeah. and for them to grasp it and just go for and it. Go for it. Yeah. And think about, you don't want to end up overstepping the mark so you end up drowning. Yeah. But at the same time, to be able to operate outside your comfort zone, mm -hmm. you're never going to be comfortable with that because that goes against the whole idea of being yes. outside your comfort yeah. zone. Yeah. But with having in the back of your mind the idea that somehow you'll make it work and it will work and it 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 will be successful yeah and you will be successful yeah and so there's a kind of a kit of parts which i think needs to be sort of imparted to a younger generation or to everybody really in mm -hmm. my mind is about self-confidence is one thing yeah but having a toolkit beneath mm -hmm. you of things that you can pull on in all sorts of experiences because you've met all sorts of wacky people and you know you glean information from that person yes. and this person yeah so by the time you put all that together yeah when you are presented with an issue or a problem you mm -hmm. think well you know i think we can find a way around this so you become yeah. you know so your your effectiveness as a person actually yeah. builds upon the confidence that you have confidence is great to have but it's yeah. but it has to be supported with some other tools yeah and to actually start to get people to think about that of the younger generation mm -hmm. is, is priceless, really. Yeah. It's even about just meeting people in the car park, you know, yeah. and having a chat with them and, and actually having the confidence to do that. Thinking more about the projects that you do now in terms of the filming that you do, how, how do you go about choosing which projects you want to do? Is it, is it people come to you? Do you say, I'm going to come up with this project? or it, It's everything. It's everything. It's absolutely yeah. everything. You know, the phone will ring and, you know, in two months' time, you'll be off to name a country. Right. <laughs> and it could be caving, it could be mountaineering, it could be top-end rock climbing. Yeah. It, it could be just about anything you could dream of. Yeah. And um, then there are ideas which I think, mm, actually, let's just go and do that. Yeah. And because I have all the gear and, you yeah, know, we just go off and do it. Yeah. And um, so it's a bit of everything, really. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to pay the bills. So it's nice if you get some money coming in, of course it yeah. is. My first freelance job ever mm -hmm. was going to Nangaparbat in northern Pakistan. It's the eighth highest mountain in the that's, world. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. But we only went to base camp. But I was with none other than Chris Wannington. And he was yeah. a childhood hero of mine, having wow. sort of read, well, adolescent hero of mine, having read the books, you know. Yes. And um, so I found myself out there on a film job with Mr. Bonington. And we always stayed in touch. Mm -hmm. And then lo and behold, a very close colleague and friend of mine, we approached Chris to see if he wanted to make a film about his life story. 
And he thought, well, okay, I trust these boys. Mm -hmm. And so we spent, Brian Hall and myself spent four years making the documentary feature of Chris's life. We just did it. Yeah. It was a passion project. That's really cool. And, it, you know, in the end, it was, it was very successful. You know, it won three or four international film awards. And, you know, we've got a few quid in the bank. We're not exactly yeah. millionaires, but that, we weren't in it for that. No. We were in it because it was an amazing story and it was a story that needed telling. Yeah. And telling from the horse's mouth dare I say it before it was too late yeah and so having the ability to to go and do those passion projects mm -hmm. is wonderful yeah but you have to be realistic and keep your roof over your head so the yes. more commercial aspect of it sure you know the phone will ring and you'll go yeah we can do that or yeah or I might well be working with a production team yeah and we guess get chatting and I'd say well have you ever thought about going to Alaska you go, oh, no, it's all white. And I go, no, it's not. It's not, actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell me about <laughs> it. And so you tell them about it. And they go, yeah. well, well. And the next thing, you know, you're out with Blue Peter doing a five-week expedition to Alaska. You've done work for Human Planet. And you went to so many different places for that. Was it a four-year four project, was it? I think it was. That? Four years? Yeah, the Human Planet was an epic series for yeah. the BBC. It was the first time that natural history filming techniques and production values had really been turned back on us as a species yes uh, it was an incredible experience uh, wonderful series to be a part of yeah there's a big team on it you know it yeah a massive team. massive project mm -hmm. but the the elements that i was brought in to do were very challenging um you know and the, but the the one i will always remember is spending time with the mongolian eagle hunters yeah that just looked incredible yeah and Sila, who was this young lad, this Beric, who's 16, right. and their passage into manhood is to be lowered into an eagle's nest down a cliff. And, and Sila, his father, was going to use a bit of knot knotted horse intestine as oh. a rope. And we said, oh, no, it's probably not. No, no, please, please just don't do that. <laughs> so, we've got some nylon here. <laughs> we've got some proper rope here. Yeah. But we've made it look really old and tatty. Is that all right? You know, but it's... It'll hold at least one and a half thousand kilos. So we'd rather use it. Anyway. Wow. So um, Beric goes and gets his eagle chick and then he trains it to hunt. Mm -hmm. And then we go back in the winter. Yeah. First big snowfall of the winter. We're back out in Western Mongolia. And we're charging around. I mean, I, I get on this Mongolian horse and I've never even ridden a donkey across Blackpool <laughs> Beach. So I don't stand a cat in hell's chance, do I really? I'm useless. <laughs> But we gave it a go and it gave them a laugh. That's all that matters, as long as you're making people laugh. Uh, and so, <laughs> so the father goes, you know, Keith, you are a good man apart from your nose. Because I've got a very big nose, as compared to a Mongolian anyway. Anyway, so we decided not to continue on horseback, us as a film team. Yeah. So we ended up going by four-wheel drive and then just leaping out and running up these mountains in the snow after these horseback Mongolian eagle hunters on a wild goose chase, trying to find a, a wolf or a fox oh my gosh. for them to hunt. And it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack, only the needle keeps moving and you don't know where the haystack is. <laughs> so the winter shoot was remarkably challenging, I yeah. would suggest. Yeah. But when that whoop went up and there was a fox going along the snow beneath us we were up on the top of this ridge crest mm -hmm. and they launched their eagles it's like bang you have to go mentally and technically yeah from like 
breathing really hard and puffing, puffing, puffing to get up the top yeah. there to boom, rock solidness yeah. and steady and composed and just totally yeah. in and focused on the job yeah. like that. And that's something which, again, is so exciting. Yeah. And there was like a half second and you have this gut feeling and any photographer and filmmaker will have it. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've got it. And okay. there was that moment when Beric launched his bird and it went careering down off this ridge crest, chasing after this fox down on the snow b- oh, below. Wow. And I'm on this enormously powerful zoom lens by this time, totally handheld, which is unheard of on this this length of lens. Yeah. Panning with the fox as it runs across the snow and yeah. you see the eagle cut through the frame. So you get this amazing two shot. Yeah. You cannot ever fake that. No. And that for me was that moment where like it just hits you in the stomach and you go, We've got it, you know? Yeah. And that is the excitement with the the filming part of it. Yeah. And you were saying before about um I don't think it was actually in this conversation we've we've talked previously about the fact that um it's not so much about the perfect shot, but it's about setting up the perfect shoot. Like the the you know the whole sequence. The whole sequence and thinking yeah. about that as a whole. So how do you go about that how how do you best make sure that you've got the best opportunity to get those shots you're always playing a balancing act yeah you have a sequence which is basically a scene and the sequence is the number of shots that you place within that scene yeah and the question that i always ask myself is how much control do i have Mm -hmm. how much control do i want to have which is subtly different yes okay or how much am i just going to let this free roll and that then has a bearing on my approach. Yeah. If I have no control, I know that I've got to smash and grab everything on the fly really quickly and it's going to be pretty dirty film work. You know, it's not going to be that yeah. uh, finessed, yeah. I would say. Have you got any examples of what that no. might be? <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> You're Actually, always very yeah, of clean. Course, of course, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and, and also this... I mean, of course, there are always going to be moments when you don't really have a lot of control. Yeah. I could say that one of them when I was out filming with Steve Baxel in Alaska and I was in a two meter rubber boat with no engine because it was ruining the sound, believe it or not. Right. And, and Steve was in a sea kayak and suddenly around us, all these fish start jumping out of the water and you're going, uh oh, hold on. And then literally like 12 ballistic missiles out of the water in front of us <laughs> erupt. Whales, oh humpback whales, wow. bubble net fishing, you know, yeah. and feeding. Fantastic. And they were so close. We did nearly, you know, you could have almost fallen into their mouths, to be honest. Was that not a bit terrifying? Well, this is an interesting thing, is that in that split second, you do a, what's the worst that's going to happen here? And the worst that's yeah. going to happen is you're going to get very wet and very cold because you will fall in the water. Yeah. And in Alaska, that's pretty nippy. Yeah. But the other thing is the insurance paperwork would have been horrific because yes. the camera would have drowned. But apart from that, you know, you'd probably get away with it. Yeah. And it okay. would be one that you could dine out on the pubs for quite a long time. It'd be worth yep. a few pints over the years, wouldn't Excellent. it? So, so no, you don't really get scared. You don't really have time to get scared. No. But then, you know, years ago, there was a, I was working with the mountain rescue teams, actually, and this story involves Cubby, uh, Dave Cuthbertson, the patron of the festival. And we were actually on Loch Nagar at night on a rescue with the team. Mm-hmm. And the team was split into two. One team was going round onto the summit plateau and myself and Cubby. And 
half the team were going into the quarry to act as reception committee for a climber that's fallen on Eagle Ridge yeah. and broken his leg. And the wind speeds on the Cairngorm summit were 136 miles an hour. Oh gosh! And you could just hear the avalanches thundering off really heavy blizzarding snow. Yeah. And you just think this is just not going to end well, and it, and it truly didn't. Mm. So I mean that was pretty rough and ready filming. But yeah. you know what else are you going to do? You're at night. Yeah in those sorts of conditions trying to make it work and really everybody was pretty horrified by by what we were up against I think. yeah yeah so obviously those are examples of, of situations where you just really don't have any control but what if you can control what are the sort of things that you would try and mitigate within a within a location then well i think if you the, the question started off as like how to create the perfect sequence yeah in many respects you'll always not be happy there is no such thing as the perfect sequence we did an amazing i was involved in a very challenging climbing sequence Mm -hmm. in peru a few years ago again a bbc project and we were in what they call um the yosemite of peru the paron valley and so the cliff was 2100 feet high so it's pretty sizable granite so it's just like yosemite yeah a little bit smaller but we were over 5,000 meters yeah and um to create that sequence, because we had ultimate control, mm-hmm. we could get the climbs to do whatever we wanted on the crux pitch. They weren't going to do it forever because it's quite spicy. Yeah. But um, so we just needed to engineer rope systems that would enable me to be below the pitch, mm-hmm. so down at the belay at the bottom yep. of that particular section, then also above mm-hmm. and three quarter looking down, and then also up close and personal right next to them. Yeah. So we needed to engineer that rope system to yeah. enable me to do that. Yeah. And so those sorts of projects become challenging, but in a different way, because you're not reacting necessarily to what's happening in front of you. Yeah. Of course, you are to some degree. But because you can control that action, yeah. what you're then looking to do is to really fine hone where the camera can get, get to, to to create a particular image, to create a particular effect. Yeah rather than just smashing and grabbing whatever you see in front of you because yeah. you ain't got no control and you need to film yeah. whatever is happening to create that sort of atmosphere of um, uh, confusion for, could be one thing mm-hmm. or energy or whatever it is. But yeah. that moment where you have no control, it's real. Yeah. So to convey that, the energy of realism mm-hmm. at that moment in time yeah. was something that you can't control. Yeah, I will also say that to create something which has finesse for me mm-hmm. can look over finessed yes if you use too many tricks and toys it kind of in some respects detracts so i think in my mind one of the ideal situations is where you have some elements of control yes and some elements where you have no control yeah and then you blur the edges between them yeah. So there are elements which have, oh, they're so beautiful. Wow, look at that. Mm-hmm. Then it's like, holy smokes, you won't get me doing that for, oh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, and there was a moment, I was with Steve Backshaw, actually. We were in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And things were getting spicy. Yeah. We were underground in an unexplored cave. And it narrowed right the way down to 30 centimeters, 12 inches. And we were in this slot. And it was like, Steve described it as slithering around on a bed of razor blades, waiting for the sky to fall in because the roof was loose. And that is no control. It's really rough and ready down there because 
and when that sequence had finished mm -hmm. you look, just looked at messenger you know on facebook whatever and it was full of these people going oh my god oh i got claustrophobia oh, yeah my, my knuckles are white you yes. know i cannot i cannot yeah. i don't know how you did that yeah and then of course the next sequence is gloriously beautiful so yeah. it's nice to be able to mix and match mix and match it, move yeah. between the two do you do you think i mean obviously you will think it, about it to some degree but do you try and storyboard out exactly what you're wanting to do what you wanted to convey is, is that sort of thinking about the messages or what you're wanting to get across really crucial in what in how you decide where to go or what to do or how to shoot something well that's an interesting thing is that um storyboarding is is i think in the realm of the feature film world yeah. predominantly yeah and when i was working on alien versus predator for instance i shot the opening sequence to that and That's um a pretty cool thing to say by the way oh really yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was not, so much not, fun. A lot, not a long like everything else is really cool it but was, that's also pretty cool it was so much fun <laughs> um so that was all storyboarded and scripted yeah. and i just followed it was like painting by numbers but we were on right. a 600 feet high so 200 meters vertical yeah frozen icicle yeah. you know sort of and then we did have a bit of an epic because the whole icicle the ice fall is formed by the pipes from the overflow system from a water tank which holds the water for the snow cannons for a ski resort above Chamonix. Are you following that? Yes, I think I've got it. And when got there's it. too much water in the water tanks, yeah. basically the automatic valves just open the floodgates and it just pours water out. Excellent. So I'm down there with Brian Hall on safety, Paul Moores and Rory are at the top. We have a climber just above the camera. We've got this enormous 35 millimeter Hollywood camera rig. Mm -hmm. We're 120 foot down this frozen waterfall. Yeah. When we hear a scream from the top and Rory shouts and it's just like Armageddon time. <laughs> the floodgates have opened and Niagara is careering over the top oh, of us. Gosh. And it's so cold, literally all the ropes are an inch thick in solid ice within seconds. And so are we. Oh no. And we're stuck. Oh gosh. <laughs> oh. So it was it was a, it's an epic sort of slightly spicy moment. Yeah. So what what were we talking about? I can't remember. <laughs> I was asking about whether um, you sort of plan your shots. Oh yes, yeah, so we planned those, <laughs> but we didn't plan the getting drenched. <laughs> most yeah. uh, what I would say is that most of the time I will have a sketch in my head about yeah. what I can. I will pre-visualize absolutely okay. because that will mean that you will have the the right equipment yeah. with you at the right time to enable you to get those angles yeah. even if it's the right lens or whatever it is that you want to achieve yeah storyboarding i'm not a very good drawing artist so you i know, said storyboarding but i i didn't have the yeah. the vocabulary to but say pre-visualization yes. is vital yeah okay yeah and even if it doesn't happen in exactly the way you think it's going to happen at least you thought about it yeah you know if you've got a plan you can change it if you haven't got a plan it's chaos yeah now just thinking about the elements there so obviously things that you can and can't control the elements of something that you can't control which of the four elements arguably there might be more but four four elements would you say is probably the most difficult to work in most difficult to work in i think is high moisture now mm -hmm. snow cold that's really easy you know filming at the south pole minus 54 absolute doddle i wouldn't have thought that but okay yeah, yeah. total doddle and because it's super dry the camera never even fogged up it's like just cold just, just cold. keep it warm and don't alter the temperature quickly with yeah. the camera 
areas of high humidity. So think rainforests. Yeah. Caving in a rainforest, oh, yeah. which is full of white water. That's so yeah, that's... it's like te technology suicide. Yes. So that for me is the most difficult. Mm -hmm. But yeah. that's pretty difficult anyway. Yeah. You know, going underground where it's unexplored, mm -hmm. effectively canyoning. Yeah in very, very high flow rates of water yeah. with electronic bits of kit. Doesn't really in somewhere mix. dark where it needs lighting. No. It's not going to work, is it? Why'd you put yourself in this situation? Yeah, I, I did ask myself <laughs> that one, actually. That was my first ever caving trip, actually. And oh, apparently really? they grade caves one to five, where one is quite easy. Yeah. Where you like, sort of walk through and go, oh, that's a nice stalactite. Yes. And five is quite tough. And apparently the cave we were in in Papua New Guinea was a grade five. Excellent. And uh, a lot of the camera kit didn't survive. You know, there was just no way we were going to get through. Oh, gosh. You know, yeah. it was just just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in those conditions, you've got very, very challenging conditions just mm -hmm. at base camp, let alone underground. Yeah. So in terms of other elements then, um, you've worked on, was it next to a volcano? Was it? Oh, yeah. That yeah. Was, that, was quite, that, that was quite interesting as well, yeah. actually. Well, not next to it, in it. In in it, right. I wasn't sure if it was in it or Yes, it was totally to it. in it. And, um, well, it's one of the most toxic places on Earth, actually. And um, Ijin Crater in Indonesia, it's a very, very active volcano. Mm -hmm. But it's not active in the sort of the lava sense, like yeah. we've had recently in Iceland. Yeah. But it's there's a lot of gas. Yeah. And this gas isn't the sort of stuff you really want to muck around with. No. You know, it's hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen fluoride, hydrogen chloride. I mean, it's just horrific stuff. What they've done in this area is they have basically hammered in steel pipes into the fumaroles. Mm -hmm. And out of these fumaroles actually dribbles molten sulfur, which then solidifies when it hits the ground. And then these guys go in to the sulfur mine and mm -hmm. chisel this stuff up, stick it in baskets and then carry it out and sell it. And it gets used in the bleaching of cane sugar and mm -hmm. in the rubber industry, apparently. Yeah. So for them, they actually get a really good salary, you know. Yeah. But f for us, we're going, gee whiz. And like, you listen to these young lads who have been doing this for I don't know, a few years now, and the guys we were working with filming, and it sounds like they've been smoking 60 fags for 40 years. Their lungs are wrecked. Yeah. Because the level of gas there is kind of 40 times the safe working level. And whoever decreed the safe working level, I do not know. Yeah. And this gas is hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen fluoride. Mm -hmm. It's highly acidic. Yeah. There is no vegetation on that on the upper level of that volcano. Yeah. It's charcoal. It's blackened by yeah. the acid rain yeah. that's then falling in this area because of the, the infusion of the fumes. Yeah. And there are moments at that on that shoot where yeah, I'm with a camera mm -hmm. and the camera lasted eight minutes. Oh gosh. And it then ceased to work. Was so that we, due to to the gas, to the, to the acid and the gas. It's like you know, it just corrodes so horrendously. Oh gosh. And so we actually took the camera out of the volcano. <laughs> Filming was over for that day. We did open heart surgery on that camera yeah. on the side of the volcano. Yeah. And we had a Swiss army knife and a leatherman and a stick. I mean, that's a good toolkit right there. That's pretty good, wasn't it? <laughs> Actually, we, we did have one of those earbud cleaner things that you know, oh, get yeah. the wax out of your ears. Yeah, cotton buds. Cotton yeah. buds. So we yeah. had one of them as well. Yeah. And we got it to work. But So back in the volcano, you know, we had to be really, really careful. And the 
technologies would just not survive. Mm-hmm. But forget the technology. What about the miners themselves? Yeah. You know, some days we would be in there and the wind would shift and you could not see your feet because of the gas, the thickness of oh the gas. Gosh. So it was literally less than meter visibility. Wow. And the ground's really rough. Yeah. You've got fumaroles everywhere. Mm-hmm. You've got boiling hot sulfur yeah. coming out of the ground. You take a wrong turn, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Behind you've got the world's biggest acid lake. Yeah. And these guys are in there vomiting oh because of the, yeah. the toxicity of the gas. Yeah. It's a really sobering place to work, actually. I was going to say, yeah, it, through all the experiences that you've, that you've had and the place you've gone, the people you've met, has it made you reassess the way you live your life or the things that you do in your life or anything like that? Well, I think inevitably all of these projects have an effect and some yeah. of them are very, very profound. Of yeah. course they are. You cannot escape that because you live cheek by jowl with these people and you, yeah. you're immersed as much as you ever can be into their lives. Mm-hmm. And certainly on that particular project, you know, we had not full oxygen style gas masks, but we had pretty decent gas masks. Yeah. They're a pain to work with, but at least we had something. Yeah. The local miners have a wet rag shoved in their mouths. That's their only protection yeah. against these fumes. And um, anyway, so a lot of our protective equipment went missing at the end of the, the shoot and we didn't really mind. No, I imagine not. Fair enough, fair enough. But you know, you're out working in all sorts of places and you think actually you guys are doing a great job out here yeah um you know you're feeding your families you're making a life for them yeah and it's tough and yeah i'm gonna really appreciate everything that i have that's for sure yeah you know we can't turn back time i can't suddenly become no and you can't, yeah. you, you, but I think it will give you a certain, like you said, appreciation yeah. of what you do have and mm-hmm. maybe, maybe. And you want to do as much as you can for them when you're there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, if I ever go back to Nepal or when I go back to Nepal, there are people there that I know that, you know, I'll meet up with and we'll have a good time again and, and we'll help each other again. Yeah. And rekindle old spirits. And it helps to sort of fuel those fires, I think. Yeah. Kindred spirits and. Yeah, forming connections, meaningful connections with people yeah. is, 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 I think, yeah, integral to a, a happy life, I think. Yeah, and as I say, you can't turn back the clock and I can't suddenly go and live in a, in a mud hut. No. You know, because, you know, it, we are where we are as a society here in Scotland. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean this, that I don't think about them and try and do my best to mitigate yeah. the way I live. Yeah. Yeah. Try not to waste and appreciate the things that I have. Mm-hmm. And if and if there are times when I can help them out there in their own country, then yes, I certainly will. Yeah, of course. Are there any places that you would love to go? Obviously, COVID is a bit of a spanner in the works with things at the moment. But is there any places that you think I really want to film this thing here or I just want to film this location? Yeah, having been at this game for a very 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 many years and the world is such an incredible place i think every story mm-hmm. is always going to be rewarding yeah whether it's a positive story or a negative story yeah there's always something you can either learn from it which then in itself becomes a positive yeah in terms of locations for me you know 
I've never been to Patagonia, you know, one of the finest mm -hmm. mountain ranges on earth. You know, yeah. I spent a lot of time in the Andes for yes. sure, but never all the way down into Patagonia. Mm -hmm. uh, I spent a lot of time in Peru, as you know. And um, yes, I've been to the South Pole, but I'd love to do like a ski mountaineering expedition in Antarctica. That yeah. would be seriously cool. Yeah. Totally cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. Very, very actually. cool. Very cold, actually. Very but <laughs> it would be good. <laughs> cool in both senses. And, you know, I have to spend a lot of time in Greenland doing that sort of stuff. It would be fantastic to do it, but down south yeah. side. Yeah. But for me, really, it's all about the people and it's all about the story. Yeah. Sure. You know, if you're going to go to some of these exotic places, that's a bonus. But yeah. The people, the stories. Yeah. Final question. What are your top tips for any budding amateur filmographers? Top tips for any budding filmmaker. Get out and do it. Yeah. The critical thing is think story, story, story. And the other big thing is to know who you're making this film for. Are you making it for you mm -hmm. and a couple of mates? Or are you actually thinking of making something that might appeal to a slightly broader audience? Mm -hmm. By doing that and thinking of story, 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 and who your audience is, yeah. will go a long way to making whatever you produce yeah. a success. Because everybody has a film studio in their pocket. Any modern smartphone, you can take amazing quality video on it. Amazing. And you can edit it on the phone and yeah. you can upload it to YouTube straight there and then. Yeah. But the where it all, but the point where it all falls down is there's no story. There's no affinity mm -hmm. because it doesn't appeal to a broader audience. Yeah, I think that's the secret. Cracking advice. Well, I've I've got a bike trip coming up with a friend, and I'll take that take your advice and just go and do it. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to say or promote at the end here? Where's my Tunnock's tea cake? Oh, I'll have to go Actually, and buy it. Actually, my caramel wafer. You know, come <laughs> on, that was the deal. I'll go and get you one now then. <laughs> Thank you very much, Keith. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. As you might have guessed from that recording, Keith and I had spent, well, we spent a lot of our time giggling, so uh, I thought I would just include this little extra clip, which was cut out of the main piece, as it wasn't particularly relevant, but um, it did bring us a lot of joy. Uh, an older gentleman on a very fantastical motorbike. Um, so yeah, here it is, enjoy. And that's another motorbike. Where's he going? Tanabets is going up the same spot. He's rung his mate. Yeah. Oh no. That's great. That's a proper, that's a proper old motor. That's a proper, that's a proper, old proper old bike, one, isn't it? We'll accept that one. <laughs> he we always had like the leather, leather flying helmet and the goggles, didn't he? <laughs> Flappy bits style. out the back like a beagle. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great, isn't it? That was good. That was really good. Proper. That was so yeah. good. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, K's. listening 
listening to the Mountain Munch podcast. A new episode will be released each month and you can find them on our website at mountainfestival.co.uk and you can also find us on Spotify. Just search for Mountain Munch and you'll spot our fantastic logo by Sparrowhawk Design. And finally, if you can rate and review this episode, that will really help us reach a wider audience. So until next time, happy adventuring and don't forget the snacks. Mm